Amen. Thanks, man. Uh, y'all be praying for Brody and Caroline. That's their family, and we're sending them out. And that's man, that's an exciting thing for a church to do. So y'all just keep lifting them up. Hey, turn your Bibles to the Book of Genesis. I'm super excited about this. It's gonna be great new study. So I, I've uh, I studied the Book of Genesis for uh, a couple years on my own. Uh, and man, I'm excited to, to teach tonight. If you're new here, uh, my name's Spencer, and I've lived here for 20, almost 22 years now. So I've lived here longer than I haven't, but my roots are back in Georgia. So I'm from Columbus, Georgia, and um, my actual family roots, though, are from about a half hour outside of Columbus, Georgia, in Marion County, Georgia. And there, there's a little... I mean, it's a tiny little cemetery uh, outside of Plains, Georgia. Y'all know where uh, uh, Jimmy Carter was from? So there's a, there's a little bitty cemetery out in Plains, Georgia that has all of the Davis family since before the Civil War. Uh, it's really crazy. And so I've taken my kids out there. My granddaddy's buried there. My dad will be buried there. I'll be buried there. And, uh, you know, we visit there pretty often. And, you know, it's, for me, it's history. It's roots, you know, because uh, I can go back there and see our family's history. You know, I can see all the Davis men have a name thing, like family names. I can see that traced on the tombstones. And, man, for me, it's, it's really grounding to go there because that's where my roots are. And, and obviously, I'm more than that. I'm, I live here. I'm a minister. I'm a a father, I'm a husband, you know, I'm an elder here at the church, but man, it's really knowing and remembering those roots really ground me. And I think for us, a study of Genesis is so important because it's roots, it's foundation, it's origin, it, it answers so many questions. It goes back to the beginning, that's the very first words, in the beginning. And so, man, I, I'm really excited to study through this, uh, and I want to kind of, in the first like eight to ten minutes, I want to give a quick intro to the book, and then we're going to jump into the actual text. So why is a study of the book of Genesis so important? The book of Genesis is the foundation for all of the Bible, for the rest of the Old Testament as well as, as the New Testament, and we can't really understand the history of the redemption of God's people unless we understand the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we already see Christ's work anticipated, and without this foundational book, we can't even understand the significance of the cross, really, without Genesis. What we believe about our origins really determines our morality. It determines our purpose. And I think there's four main questions that a human has to answer. Everybody has to look at the question of origin. Where did I come from? Everybody has to answer the question of meaning. Why am I here? Everybody has to answer the question of morality. How am I supposed to live? And the last one is everybody's got to answer every human, regardless of their culture. They've got to answer the question of destiny. What happens next? Like, what's... How does this all end? And we see the answers to all those questions in the book of Genesis. And, and Genesis, to be fair, it does answer a lot of questions. And if you've got kids, your kids have probably asked a billion questions that are in the book of Genesis, like, why do we wear clothes? You know, well, uh, book of Genesis, why do, why do humans get married? Why should we not divorce? Why do we have marital struggles? Why don't we all speak the same language? Why are humans more important than animals? Why do we operate on a seven-day work week? Why, why do we take a day off per week? Why is work hard? Why is raising kids hard? Kids don't ask that. Why is raising kids hard? Why is childbirth hard? Why do people die? Why do we need saving? These are huge questions that we find the answers to in the book of Genesis. Now, pause. 
There are a lot of questions uh, that are going to pop up in the book of Genesis that we may not take time to answer. There's a lot of, I mean, we could spend years, seriously, years in Genesis 1. And there's a lot of questions like, okay, how did Moses write Genesis if it all happened before he's born? Okay, uh, what about the young earth versus old earth? What about the Nephilim? What about creation versus evolution? Let me just say, we're putting together a resource list. Are we sending that out via email, Joseph? All right, send it out via email. So encourage you guys to study on your own because it would, we'd be here until Jesus actually came back teaching through the book of Genesis if we try to dive into this. Um, let me read a, a, a quote from Calvin. Uh, he said this because there's intense mysteries in Genesis that we'll never grasp. He said this, since both the eternity of God's existence and the infinity of his glory would prove a twofold labyrinth. Let us content ourselves with modestly desiring to proceed no further in our inquiries than the Lord, by the guidance and instruction of his own works, invites us. So for us, we're going to stick to the text. We're going to try to say what it says. Why is Genesis so important? To understand our origins, to understand who we are, understand the meaning of life, our place in the world, our relationships with other creatures, with other people, and with the creator himself. So a couple notes just as an intro, uh, if you're taking notes, Genesis is theology and history. You see, Genesis is history, but it's concerned with more than just history. Because even if y'all just pick up a, a history book, you know, a history book is selective. Like a person that's writing that book selects certain stories and omits some others because they want to make a point about history. I mean, Genesis is the same way. You know, Genesis covers a time period of about 2,500 years. That's a long time. It's more than the rest of the Bible combined in just the book of Genesis. So it has to be really selective. And, and writing a history is more like painting a picture than taking a video. Genesis is very selective. It's basically, it's selecting accurate history in a way to paint theological truths. Genesis is theological history. Second thing, the writing of Genesis is beautiful. Man, it is beautiful. Genesis doesn't read like a dry textbook. You know, God could have been like, all right, how am I going to tell these guys about me? I know. I'll list my qualities, and then I'll define them. I am omniscient. I am omnipresent. It doesn't read like that. Thank God. It doesn't read like that. That would be very difficult to read. It could be like an essay, like a theological or a philosophical essay. God didn't write it like that. What we have in Genesis are stories and poems that tell us how God acts. It's important. God doesn't or Genesis doesn't describe God in abstract ways, but it tells us through story how God acts in the world. We learn about God as a person. He creates. He's involved with his creation. He loves, judges, and rescues. To find out theology about God, we hear about how he acts. So when we're studying the book of Genesis, man, we're going to try to paint a picture of how does this fit into the whole, because it's really important when you're studying any book, how does this fit into the whole story of redemption? We know that this is the foundation for redemption. And not just that, it's a lens through which we can interpret our experience in the world. Here we're introduced to a God who is not part of creation. He's transcendent, but he's involved with creation, which means he's imminent. Everything's dependent on God who created it, and he created it good. Humans are not the most important thing in the cosmos. God is but we have a special relationship with him and that confers dignity on us. These truths are not something we'd come to apart from the book of Genesis. But Genesis does more than just form a worldview. It's gonna tell us how to behave. It's gonna list some stories like Joseph and Abraham and say, go and do likewise. And it's gonna list some other stories like Cain and Adam and Eve in the garden and say, don't do that. 
It's, it's really, it's a theologically laced, morally prescriptive history that teaches us through narrative. All right, last couple things on the intro. The style of Genesis is really interesting because it's like, it's presented by a narrator. So the narrator who's not named is gonna be able to tell us what people are thinking. It's gonna even be able to tell us what God's thinking. And it's basically, it's doing this to teach us how to act. So uh, he's telling us what's good and bad. And one of the things I find is so interesting is how selective it is. Because it'll zoom in on one generation, and then there's like six generations that don't get touched. But it only zooms in on the things it wants to teach us. How tall was Abraham? Ain't nobody know. It wants us to think about his faith. And, and when it zooms in on a story, man, I encourage y'all to just take some time and read the Cain and Abel story. I've never in scripture read a story more intense. If you really sit and, I mean, every word or the omission of a word is just it's dripping with meaning. It's, it's so intense. All right. Let me give you a little bit on the structure of Genesis. So in order to understand this book, it's helpful to understand the structure. There's two different structures that go along in the book of Genesis, and they're kind of overlaid over each other. The first one is the Toledot, and it's basically the word Toledot means these are the generations of. So you see the separation, and I don't know why they misspelled the second Toledot, but anyway, that you see these, uh, it's basically, if you're familiar with Netflix, you basically have the trailer, the intro, the preface, and then you got 10 episodes. So when you see these are the generations of so-and-so, you know, oh, new episode. Great, and it usually, except for the heavens and earth one, it starts with their birth and ends with their death, usually, all right? The second structure overlays it, and it's, a, it's basically... Um, it's structured with transitions in content and style. So Genesis, and Brody's gonna cover this when he preaches on Genesis 5. Genesis, if you go to that next one, it covers a ton of time. Y'all probably can't read that, right? Eh, all right. So it's a timeline, and one thing that's fascinating is to think about the timeline in Genesis. You know Adam lived long enough if they were in the same place to meet Noah's dad? You know Noah lived long enough if they were in the same place to meet Abraham? What? It's crazy when you start thinking about it. But the way that it's structured, you got Genesis goes 2,500 years just about. But the way that it's structured, it starts out covering a ton of time in the primeval history. So the first section right here is chapters 1 through 11, and it covers a ton of time right here, all the way up to Abraham, okay? It covers a ton of time, and this, uh, this talks about creation and fall, Cain, the sons of God marrying daughters of man, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And it's got a structure where all of these stories talk about sin, and then there's a speech from God, and then there's grace from God and punishment. The second section is the patriarchal narratives. All right, so we fly through a ton of time in that primeval history, but then we slow way down in chapters 12 through 36 to just zoom in on a couple families. Here we talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then in the third section, the Joseph story, we slow down even more. It's interesting. It takes us 11 chapters to cover thousands of years, 25 chapters to just cover three families, and then he zooms in 14 chapters just for one guy. And the book ends with us poised on the edge of the Exodus in, in Egypt. I mean, it's really interesting. So just keep that structure in mind as we're studying through, and keep your eyes out for the, some major themes. The theme of covenant, which are these promises or agreements. The second one is the theme of blessing. 
Uh, and the third one is the promised land. Pay attention not just to what's happening, but to where it's happening. Last thing, who's, who's the author of Genesis? God is. He told it to Moses who wrote it down. All right, intro. Y'all ready? Let's jump in. Uh, let's go to the text, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Man, so simple, so beautiful. The beginning of what? That's the question. Um, John Walton says this, the moment we begin to ponder the phrase in the beginning, its cloud-like simplicity dissipates to reveal rugged mountain peaks. So he's like, yeah, the beginning, but when you start thinking about it, it's like, oh wow, the beginning of what? Is it the beginning of God? No, it's not, because in the beginning, God acts. It's this period of beginning, and it says, in the beginning, God created. All right, we gotta get a little bit nerdy here. The word for beginning is birashit, and the word for created is bara. This is a really unique word, bara, which means he created out of nothing. It can be used to manufacture stuff, like when God formed man out of dust, but really, primarily, it's the word that he created out of nothing. And that's the understanding that uh, Old Testament and New Testament saints had, that God created out of nothing. Let me give a couple of notes when we think about that. We don't believe at Red Oak that there were some pre-creation building blocks that God used to form stuff. You know, the reason we don't believe that is because the Bible doesn't preach that. Uh, Hebrews 11 says, By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that were visible. It was just made by God's word. The second thing, and this is as nerdy as we're going to get tonight. The second thing we need to understand is, this first statement, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's supposed to be like an intro statement, like a prologue. It's not like saying, in the beginning, God made everything. And then verse 2 says, now, after he made everything, everything was without form and void. It's not that. This is a parenthetical statement. The reason I say that is because if you don't say that, it opens up the door for a lot of weird old earth timelines that really don't line up with Scripture. So, in the beginning, God The word that's used for God here is not the name we commonly use for God, Yahweh. It's the word Elohim. Elohim, another name for God. This this word has a plural ending, Elohim. It's plural in form, but a singular in meaning. Why does it say this plural name of God? John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, who? Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Here we see God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit creating. God, plural, but singular, creates, singular. God was in the beginning. This points to God's self-existence. This is a crazy thing. If you're a kid in the room, I know my kids have asked this question, and I ask this question still, how did God always exist? That is one that will blow your mind because we don't know anything else like that. But God always was. He's outside of time and he's eternal. God created the heavens and the earth. This is just a blanket term like saying from head to toe. God created everything, all right? Now verse 2 is going to show us how he did it. Verse 2, now the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is a mysterious verse, really. Verse 1 set the stage, and in verse 2, here's the story. The earth was without form and void. The words are tohu vabohu. I like the way that sounds, tohu vabohu. Uh, But it means like the earth, it's used in Job and in Deuteronomy to describe a desert. It's wasteland, it's void, it's empty. And he goes on to describe it. And darkness was over the face of the deep. This word is, has the, the ideas of chaos. Darkness was over the face of the deep. That word for deep can also be sea. And it says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What is this? Deep, dark, empty, chaotic, void waters. Man, it's imagery that spoke to, is supposed to evoke feelings. Man, you think about the descriptions we have of heaven of streets of gold and jewels and things like that, that God is painting a picture for finite man to try to understand the infinite. What what was the world like before it was the world, before there was time, before there was empty space, before there was anything? And talk about the mysteries of God. But we know God, his spirit hovered or circulated or ruled over the waters. Verse three, God speaks. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's so simple and so powerful. No one in history can do this. No one in history can bara, can create. But God just speaks, and it happens. And he starts this pattern that you'll see throughout all the days. God speaks and says, let there be. And then it says, there was. And then God saw that blank was good. And then the pattern goes, and God called the thing whatever, and there was evening and morning, the blank day. So there's that kind of pattern that goes throughout all these. And it's a beautiful concept. God speaks and creates. Man, in heaven, if we can do the replay thing, this is what I want to replay. I want to see it. I want to hear it. God speaks and light happens. What, did it, what, what was his voice like? You know, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia describes it as a song. That would be awesome. I don't know if it's that. I would like it that way, but I don't know. This isn't crude manufacturing. This is creation out of nothing. One thing that we do well to think about is, in his first act, he does what he does for all redemptive history. He dispels darkness. In his first act, he dispels the darkness. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, in his first act. Verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God approves of the creation. So we're given a small glimpse into God's character. He doesn't just power through creating like, all right, I'm gonna make this, I'm gonna make this, I'm gonna make this, I'm gonna make this. He doesn't just power through. He stops and admires it and says, this is good. This reflects my character. It's good. Then he separates the light from the dark. He does that a lot in the first couple of of verses. God is ordering the chaos He's ordering the chaos, which means that he's not just powerful, but he's sovereign. Verse five, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the very first day. All right, so somewhere in creation, in this first act, time itself appears to have been created. And God set up specific periods of light and dark and he separated them and he named them. This is the first day, but that pattern of day and night, day and night, we talked about it in our study of Peter, that that will continue until the end of creation. Pause. 
There's a lot of debate right here. This is where folks get into the young earth, old earth thing. We're not going to get fully into that, but the debate centers around day, that word yom, and people will take that word, and because they think science has said the earth is really, really old, so I need to find a way to fit that in here. So it's probably in that word day, because, you know, the scripture does say, you know, in... Uh, in Psalm 90, a thousand years in your sight are, are as but yesterday when it's passed. So maybe we can stretch these things to be long days. We don't believe that. And I'll tell you why. Three reasons. Yom, that word, it most often just refers to a 24-hour period. It can be used longer, but it most often referred to a 24-hour period. Second thing, in case we're confused, God puts further clarity on it by numbering the days and by saying morning and evening. Third thing, in interpreting scripture with scripture, 24 hour days of creation are never questioned by Paul or John or Jesus. In fact, that time period's alluded to a lot of times, even by God himself in Exodus 20. When God gives the Ten Commandments, he explains the days of creation in reference to seven literal 24-hour periods. He sets up creation as the example of a man's normal life cycle, a week, six days working, one day off. Let me just say, you get into dangerous ground when you start interpreting Scripture by a secondary or a third meaning of a word. That's where you get into dangerous ground. You get into even more dangerous ground when you see something in culture or something in science, some human wisdom, and try to bend scripture to fit human wisdom. That's a dangerous game. Verse six and seven. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so. What the heck? What is that? So he makes a divider. He stretches out the waters, so there's waters above, and there's waters below. We see that now, right? Waters above and waters below, what's he making? Empty space. That's one thing the Big Bang Theory cannot account for, is empty space. Does a ball of matter explode and make time and make empty space out of a ball of matter? God here, he separates the expanse. Verse six is the command, verse seven shows the fulfillment. All of creation is subject to and obedient to Yahweh. Verse eight, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and morning the second day, pause. That word heaven, we think of heaven and we think, oh, that's where God lives. Okay, this word is shamayim. It can be used for heaven where God lives and it can be used for sky. In this sense, it's used for sky. All right. Continuing the style, morning and evening, the second day completes. Verse nine, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear, and it was so. So the waters were covering every place, and then God gathered them together to let dry land appear. God spoke and it happened. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. He's still pausing and admiring. This reflects me. This is good. God now names the dry land and the water. So far in this creation day, he hasn't really created any new thing, but he's ordered the things that he's made. And God's glorified in what he's done. Verse 11 through 13, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. All right, 
you could get nerdy here and be like, all right, so he made fruit, and those are the ones with the seeds inside, and that's different from the vegetation. Genesis is making more of a moral point than a scientific one. Now, obviously, it's laying a scientific groundwork for botany right here, like for all these systems of natural laws and phenomenons, but don't miss the fact God's preparing the world for us. Why? He's making future jobs. He's making future meals right here, future vocations, future housing for the animals and for those who would bear his image. God's creation is a reflection of the creator himself. There's no waste here. Everything serves a primary function, glorifying God, and everything has a secondary function, helping us out, serving the creation. Verse 14 through 19, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons, days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God says it and it happens. And God made the two great lights, the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening. There was morning the fourth day. Wait. Didn't he already create light? The very first, let there be light? Yeah, he did. He already created light and dark, but not from the sun. Okay? So there was light. Now, these words are different. The word used in that other verse and in this verse, they're different, but they have the same root. But, you know, we say light, and we mean different things. Like we say, hey, will you cut the light on? We mean light fixture. Or we say, is it light out? And we mean light. You know, you know what I'm saying? And here, he's talking about the fixture. He's talking about the actual luminaries. Here's something interesting. The sun and the moon are not called by their proper names. Why not? Why didn't he say, and he created the sun and the moon? Well, you think about uh, the cultures around the ancient Israelites, they worshiped the sun and they worshiped the moon. And so here, He's downplaying their importance. He's showing specifically, I made that. I made that. You know what I'm saying? Basically, the focus is not on the stars. The focus is on Yahweh. The focus is not on the sun. He's saying, oh, the lesser light, the moon? Yeah, I made that. The greater light? He didn't even call them by their names. That's why it's so sad when people worship the fixtures that God's created rather than God himself. Interesting, he spends more time describing the celestial bodies than even man's creation in the first chapter. He says, let them be for signs and seasons. These aren't just lights, but they're markers. They keep the calendar. They keep the order. They order and separate day from night. The signs, seasons, days, and years, these are time markers. They keep the phases, the constellations, the tides, the seasons. All of these God's setting up. Why? He's prepping a place for humans. He's prepping a time to sleep and a time to work. He's prepping a time to harvest and a time to plant. He's prepping creation for his people. And it's good, evening and morning, the fourth day. And this is the first sunset. It's pretty cool. Verse 20 and 21. God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens, the one he made. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird 
according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. It's cool that God didn't name these creatures. He leaves that for Adam. He's saving that job for Adam. Here he simply blesses them. There's a lot of patterns that are falling in place. The first day God created the heavens. Fourth day he fills the heavens. Second day God separates the waters. Fifth day he fills them. Both the animals, uh, both kinds of animals are said to swarm and that word's like burst forth. I wish I was there for that. When he's like, let there be birds and it's like, let there be fish. Like they're just, the, the word's like bursting forth. Verse 22, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. Let birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and morning the fifth day. Where modern man talks about success, the Old Testament man talks about blessing. God blesses the animals. God blesses the man. God blesses the Sabbath. God blesses Adam. God blesses Noah. God blesses the patriarchs and his people. One of the main themes of blessing here is multiplication, procreation. It's interesting. And this blessing spills over to crops and nations, but most often it's family. It's a blessing. This day closes with the same pattern. God speaks, it happens, evening and morning, the day. Last two verses we're going to cover. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kind and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God spoke and it happened. And here's the first land animals. And it appears that he splits them into three categories that really are gonna fulfill future roles. It's not like mammals and reptiles and amphibians. It seems to be what are gonna become domestic like food type animals and then wild often prey animals and then wild often predatory animals man this story of creation is so simple but when you zoom in like like walton said it's got cloud-like simplicity so a kid can understand it but when you start zooming in that those clouds dissipate and there's rugged peaks behind it there are mysteries of god but i want to just In the last few minutes we have, I want to just talk about what can we learn from creation. Man, there's so many things we can learn, but I want to zoom in on just a couple. But, man, God made the world for his own glory, but he also made it for us. He is totally prepped for man to work and sleep and rest and eat and cultivate and farm and have relationships and love. It's also made for man to enjoy. Think about it. Creation is not just functional. It's beautiful. It's artistic. There's hardly any straight lines in creation. You think he could have made oxygen and water just just appear. He could have made them just come out of like some functional box or something like that. But he put them into beautiful living forms. Trees and clouds and rain and creeks and lakes and glaciers. They're functional, but they're also for us to enjoy because the creation looks good and it smells good and it feels good and it tastes good because God is good and it reflects him remember this isn't just history it's theology and we learn a lot about God from looking at it he's powerful he's sovereign he's good let me highlight two more in closing what can we learn from creation God loves us God loves you 
Man, creation is creative. It's a beautiful gift, and it's made for man. We are meant to see God and feel his love in creation. I want to read some lyrics to a song that had a lot of meaning to me early in my Christian walk. It's by a girl named Sarah Groves. She says this, I'm trying to work things out. I'm trying to comprehend. Am I the chance result of some great accident? I hear a rhythm call me. Sorry. Uh, for real, this song meant a lot to me in my, in my early walk, so... Give me a second. All right. I hear a rhythm call me, the echo of a grand design. I spend each night in the backyard staring up at the stars in the sky. I have another meeting today with my new counselor. My mom will cry and say I don't know what to do with her. She's so unresponsive, I just can't break through. She spends all night in the backyard staring up at the stars and the moon. They have a chart and graph of my despondency. They want to chart a path for self-recovery. They want to know what I'm thinking and what motivates my mood to spend all night in the backyard and staring up at the stars and the moon. Maybe this was made for me. For lying on my back in the middle of a field. Maybe that's a selfish thought or maybe there's a loving God. Maybe I was made this way. To think and to reason and to question and to pray. And I've never prayed a lot, but maybe there's a loving God. Maybe this was made for me, for lying on my back in the middle of a field, and maybe that's a selfish thought, or maybe there's a loving God. That's good. So, man, if you find yourself despondent, like if you find yourself alone, look at creation. There's a loving God. Spend time in creation. It speaks it. This season especially, this weekend, Man, this morning, we all up like early to see the sun coming through the yellow leaves and the frost on the ground. Woo, that's good. That's for you. You're supposed to say, there is a loving God. He loves me. I feel sun on my face. First thing creation preaches. Well, let me read this. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there's no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Creation preaches God's glory and God's love. Second thing creation preaches. The beginning connects to the end. Genesis initiates the whole plot. But y'all know what's fixing to happen. The world is fixing to go, right? God's blessing on humans is going to be introduced, but soon after, the plot's going to get complicated by humans' rebellion against God. And then the rest of Genesis and the rest of Scripture shows God's relentless pursuit to restore the relationship, to redeem humanity and restore blessing on them. If you look at the end of the book, we're at the very start, if you look at the end of the book, way back in Revelation, the last two chapters of Revelation They use language from right here at the beginning. They echo the garden. Remember in Genesis 2, we're going to read about that uh, later on. It talks about life and a garden with a tree and food and springs of water. A tree of life, gold and precious stones, rivers, no death, no pain. But the man falls and creation groans waiting to be redeemed. Not just us, but all of creation. Let me read this vision of the future, of the end. Still to come, Revelation 21. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for, adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water and life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That's the future. God said it and it was so. It's going to happen. Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They won't need light or a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they'll reign forever and ever. The restoration of the new heaven and new earth, rivers of water, tree of life, and the best part, no longer will there be anything accursed, because Christ became a curse for us. Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives, us, gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will, there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of these nations. Listen. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. And nor, nor anyone who does what's detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The end mirrors the beginning, but no snake. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it. That's good. Man, he was before us in Genesis preparing a place, and now he's there before us now preparing a place in heaven. In the beginning was God. In the end is God, and we get to be with him. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for this study. I thank you for this book, and I pray that you would expand our understanding. Uh, Lord, there's so many mysteries in here we just don't get, uh, so many things that we don't think rightly about or don't even remember when we're supposed to, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us during this study. Lord, I, I pray that we would think as you would have us to think. Lord, I pray that we would study well as a church, and I pray that we would, man, benefit greatly from seeing our roots, from seeing our foundation. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.